Open your Bibles or or your (coughs) device (laughs) to the book of Acts, chapter 22. Acts 22. The Apostle Paul, he had been warned repeatedly for many months throughout his travels uh, throughout the Roman Empire in the provinces of Greece, Macedonia, then in Asia, uh, that chains and tribulations awaited him when he went to Jerusalem. Now he had arrived in that city, and uh, after he got there, there was a failed attempt by the Jerusalem elders and James, Jesus' brother, uh, to placate the Jews because of the trouble that was being stirred up even before he got there. Uh, and then also Paul, he had been falsely accused by a group of Jews from Asia, which is where Ephesus was, where Paul had spent several years, the greatest outreach, uh, throughout his three missionary journeys. And uh, uh, they said that he was teaching people to abandon uh, their Jewish culture and their traditions and to abandon the law of Moses. And that was not what Paul represented to them. He represented that salvation now came by grace through faith and certainly not by uh, obedience to the law, which could only condemn. Uh, we see that in other parts of the New Testament. So in, in thinking about it too, Paul took a lot of heat. Uh, and in a lot of the cities that he had planted churches in, if you've been with us through the study in Acts, it's like every time you turn around, the guy's getting beat up, drug out of town, left for dead, <laughs> and thrown in jail. Uh, and, and he took a lot of heat for his testimony of Christ uh, and, and throughout his journeys. So in this case, the trouble was coming from these guys, these Jews from Asia, and they were probably the same ones that were there standing against him when he was at Ephesus. Now, they specifically accused him of taking a guy by the name of Trophimus the Ephesian, uh, which is uh, the, the capital city of Asia in that day, Asia Minor, uh, now modern-day Turkey. They, they accused him of taking Trophimus uh, into the temple. And they wrongly concluded, because they had seen Paul probably around the city with this guy, and Trophimus was his traveling companion. He, Paul had brought a group of men with him to Jerusalem because he had collected an offering from various churches throughout the regions that we've talked about on this last journey to bring and to present to the church at Jerusalem because they were in trouble. Persecution was on the rise. There was a famine. They had a lot of things going against them. And it was Paul's heart to bring this, this offering to them not only to help with their need, but to demonstrate to them that the Gentile churches really cared about uh, the, church, the church at Jerusalem, the sort of the mother church, the, the one that was from the Jews. So he's trying to, and, and you can see throughout his writings, he's doing what he can to unite the two. Uh, remember, we looked at the Sorig, where they, they accused Paul of taking Trophimus behind this dividing wall on the Temple Mount. It was called the Sorig, a waist-high wall, and and that just didn't happen. Uh, and yet they said that he, he had, and, and Paul would later write to the Ephesian church that the dividing wall, the Sorek, has been taken out of the way. There's a, a new creation, a new man as a result of the gospel. So anyway, as a result of this, the, the hubbub that the Jews stirred up against Paul, there was a huge uproar. The city went into an uproar. Uh, they thought, because if, if Paul took a Gentile into the temple, that that would utterly defile their most holy place. And it was a big deal. We've talked about that. It was a big deal to them. They had rights, of, the temple guard had rights of execution. It was the only right of execution they had. Uh, the Romans took the rest uh, against someone who violated that particular law. So 
they get a hold of Paul, they drag him out of the temple and onto the temple mount. And there in the northwest corner of the temple mount stood the fortress Antonia. And that was where the Romans uh, had, uh, they had a strong military presence in the city. Uh, you can see here on the slides that I've got, I see you guys looking up. Good, the guys are getting ahead of you on this, and they're with me on the slides. But they took him out, and, and if you look, the first slide I had is what the Temple Mount looks like today, looking at it from the south, and then swiveling around, looking at it, the second slide, what a, an artist's conception of what it looked like in the first century when these things happened. I showed this last week, but I wanted to show it again so that you can orient where these things are taking place. So this big fortress, the one on the right side there in the slide, is where the, the, the soldiers and the commander, the, the Roman tribune, were housed. And uh, the, 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 the one tower there was taller than the others, and that's where they kept lookout over the Temple Mount. Now remember, this is Pentecost. It's a busy time of year for the for the Romans. <laughs> and I mentioned last week, it's like when we have a holiday weekend, you know, the cops are out. Well, they were, they were, they had a strong presence this time because this is one of the three major national feasts that all Jews, if you're over 20, you're required to attend. And so there would have been huge crowds, uh, on, on the Temple Mount when these things took place. So they, they grab Paul, they drag him out of the temple. The news comes to the commander, uh, and, and it was a, a Roman tribune by the name of Claudius Lysias. Uh, we see that in, uh, further in chapter 26, uh, that he had responded with this massive show of force. It says that he brought his centurions. Each one had 100 guys under him. And he and these guys come flooding out onto the Temple Mount. Well, uh, when the Jews saw that, they backed off. They <laughs> decided it was in their best interest not to beat Paul any longer. And uh, so the tribune comes up and he orders Paul under arrest and he orders him to be chained with two chains. I think it's interesting to say two chains because remember uh, when uh, I think it was Agabus, the prophet had been with Paul in Caesarea, he said, they're going to chain you hand and feet. He takes his belt and he ties himself up, hands and feet. Anyway, all of this happened. All of it was a fulfillment of everything that the Holy Spirit had been warning Paul, both in, internally in his own time with the Lord and externally through other people as Paul traveled towards Jerusalem. Remember, we looked at the people were interpreting these warnings as don't go. Paul was inter interpreting it as be ready, and he was being prepared for what was ahead. And so now here he is, <laughs> he's in deep trouble. He's bound hands and feet with chains, probably hands and feet. We don't know for sure, but that's the assumption. And he's in the hands of the Gentiles. Everything that had been told him was coming about. But we looked at that as though, yeah, well, of course, that's not a great place to be in human terms. But <laughs> from a divine perspective, Paul had to be looking at this and going, yeah, I get this is this is exactly what the Lord told me was going to happen, and now it's happening. So this has to somehow, even though he didn't have all the answers, this has to somehow be God's will for my life. So uh, anyway, the the Roman Tribune, the, this guy Claudius Lysias, he, he thinks that he has a, a case of mistaken identity going, and he thinks that Paul is an Egyptian assassin from a group called the Sicarii. We looked at that last week. They were the dagger men. And they were the ones that, uh, passing through a crowd, they would just slip a very sharp dagger in and out of someone and uh, and then walk off and leave them 
mortally wounded and bleeding out, and, and that was what they did. And this guy, the, the Roman commander, he thought that Paul was one of these guys. And Paul responded to the, he responds to him. And, and think about it too. If you have a, a guy that has been getting beaten up on the Temple Mount, and you come out, you put him under arrest, you put him in chains, and then you start to talk to him, and he speaks to you in impeccable, cultured, perfect Greek. That's surprising. And that's what Paul does. Uh, the commander's shocked. So it, we, we finished up last week looking at verses 39 and 40 in chapter 21. Said Paul said, I'm a Jew. He says, who are you? What, what's going on? And Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm not some Egyptian. I'm not an assassin from Egypt. Uh, I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, no unimportant city. And I implore you, which is to implore someone is to come just short of begging them, permit me to speak to the people. So in all of this, we looked at last week, Paul goes, I have an idea. What a great time to spread the gospel. But it's true. He lived for this. This was his crowning moment. This was He had prayed and prayed for years, for decades, that he would have opportunity to bring the gospel to his countrymen. And now, and now, they had put him up on their shoulders because the crowd was trying to, still trying to get at him after the soldiers got a hold of him. And the commander says, put him up, you know, lift him off the ground. When they got to the stairs, because the crowd's still grabbing at him and trying to pull him down. They, they seriously wanted to hurt him. They wanted to kill him. He says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Very interesting the commander wouldn't likely wouldn't know Hebrew or Aramaic, Aramaic, which was the language of the day for the Jews. Now, remember, too, this is Pentecost, as I mentioned. There could easily have been 100,000 people on the Temple Mount this day. It is a huge area, as I showed you on the, the slide a minute ago. I mean, it is a big area, and the city would swell to somewhere between one and two million people during these feasts because it was a pilgrimage time for people to come from all over the empire, they would descend upon Jerusalem. The hills around Jerusalem would be would be dotted with tents because that's where they camped out. And the city would open up, the temple grounds would open up, and the people would come in with the morning sacrifice. That's when they opened the gates and they would just come flooding in. So here he is. He's been praying for an opportunity to, to speak with these people. How could he possibly have known that God would orchestrate circumstances to where he, when he holds his hand up to calm the crowd, he's got a chain hanging off of it. And yet the crowd becomes quiet. And I believe that that is not because they were being all kinds of obedient. I believe that God was touching their hearts as well. As I mentioned, when I pray, I'll tell you what, when I, when I go to teach, I pray for God to, to anoint the, the speaking for sure. <laughs> I've got nothing to say otherwise. But I also pray for him to anoint the hearing. That, that God would open your ears, open your heart, so that you could receive the word. Because it's only through the work that he does in us that anything takes place in our lives. That's why I encourage you guys all the time, apply the word of God to your life. It's so important. So we see God working on both sides of this. Uh, as Paul stands up here, uh, <laughs> to address the, his countrymen with the gospel. And, and they had been so out of control only moments before, and now they're like, okay, what's he got to say? 
We wrapped up again last week with the understanding this was Paul's moment. This was the answer to his prayers for many years. This was why he says in Romans, if I could, I would become cursed of God. I would take the curse of God upon myself if my countrymen could be saved. I mean, he is that adamant. He loves these people so much. And God loves these people so much, he's going to use this to speak to them. So an uncommon silence had fallen upon the crowd as Paul begins now to speak to them. Acts chapter 22, verse 1. He says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Now, brethren and fathers, that was a term of of sincere respect. That was how you would formally address a crowd. It's the same way that Stephen addressed the Jews right before they stoned him to death. But it's the same way that he addressed them. He said, brothers, fathers, hear me. He says, hear my defense. The Greek word for defense is the word apologia. Uh, and it's a, it's a, a well-known word in Christian scholarly circles. It, it's the word we use for apologetics. And that's the, the, the field of study of giving reasons for faith. Uh, it's the same word the Apostle Peter uses in 1 Peter 3.15, where he says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that's precisely what Paul is doing here. He's saying, hear my defense. Hear my reasoning for why I stand before you now today in chains. What brought me to this point and what God has done in my life. Because he's going to go back and he's going to talk to them about the man that he was. In a sense, he's, he's going to tell them, look, I was just, I was you. I was just like, I was so much like you. I'm more like you than you are. <laughs> he's going to get really direct with these people. And he's going to lay these things out. Interesting, too, that Paul's pattern, his habit, if you look in the book of Acts and you see that where he goes, when he, whenever he would come rolling into a town, uh, walking into town, he didn't, he didn't have a four-wheel drive. <laughs> when he would come into a town, he would go straight to the synagogue and he would begin to reason with the Jews from their scriptures, from the Old Testament, which what we look at as the Old Testament. It was the Bible in those days. It was the scriptures. And he would reason with them how Jesus was the fulfillment of their long-awaited Messiah. That would be his launching point. He would do that every, and if you read, you look in the book of Acts, he goes in, he goes to the synagogue, he, he says to the Jews first, and then also to the Greek. That was his pattern. He's not what he, that's not what he's going to do here. And I believe, uh, truly, he absolutely had the utmost respect for the word of God. And he used it well. He was very highly educated, as we'll see in a minute. But he decides rather, and I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that his launching point would not be the Word of God, that it would be his personal testimony, uh, beginning with his heritage as a Jew. Again, he's going to look back at the person he was, and then he's going to look at what happened after that. So as we go through the text here, keep that in mind. Verse 2, and when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And I'll bet the commander was scratching his head. That doesn't say that, but at this point he's going, what's this guy saying? <laughs> Have you ever been around somebody, you know they're talking about you, or you know they're talking about something important, you can't understand a word they're saying. And so I, you know, I have to think that the commander is, is maybe looking at him with a little bit of a wary eye at this point. And then he said in verse 3, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you all are today. He's saying, I'm you. Again, 
I, I cannot help but think that the, the Holy Spirit is quickening the ears of these men and women, the people, the huge crowd on the Temple Mount as Paul speaks these things. Uh, God loves these people so much that he's giving them this opportunity to pay attention uh, to the words that are being spoken and about to be spoken. So Paul, he also, he understands their zeal. <laughs> he understands that, that they have been very hardened about the things. That, they've been very hardened about the gospel because they did not like God's choice of Messiah. <laughs> what do you mean some rabbi from Galilee? Any good thing come out of Nazareth? Come on. They did not like his choice of Messiah. They did not like his method of salvation now that, now that the field was even. It didn't matter if you were a Jew, it, it, but, and if you were a Gentile, that you had equal opportunity for salvation before God through the work that Christ did when he went to that cross, one sacrifice for all. And so here he is, he's telling these people, and he's going to get to that. We'll, we'll get to that towards the end of the message today, but he's going to just lay these things out succinctly and hoping to get them to understand that he's not there on his own authority. He is there because God put him there. He is there. He is fulfilling the ministry that God had personally called him to in doing this. He's not just some guy that wants to run his mouth. And, and that's very clear when you look at what happens next. So uh, <laughs> he says that, that, now he talks about Tarsus of Cilicia being his birthplace, but he proceeds to let them know that he was brought up in Jerusalem. Now the word brought up in the original language, it's a reference to educated. Uh, the construction of the sentence in Greek, it's a clear reference to his education. Uh, the, the English Standard Version renders this, he, I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So he's not just saying I was raised by my parents. He's saying I was brought up in Judaism by this really important dude. Now that would have been a huge endorsement as the Jews heard this, to any serious-minded Jew, they would know who this guy Gamaliel was. Uh, the Talmud said that Gamaliel was the grandson of a, a rabbi named Hillel. Hillel, the Jews claimed, he was the greatest rabbi of their entire era. He was a very, very well-known man. Now, the Mishnah said that when Rabban, now that's not rabbi, but Rabban, Rabban is a rabbi's rabbi, that when Rabban Gamaliel died, that the glory of the Torah died with him. That's how important this guy was. So when Paul name drops here, hey, I was brought up, brought up by this guy, they would understand he is, you know, he ain't some school guy that's just kind of coming through town. He is somebody that really had a pedigree behind him with reference to Judaism. Acts chapter 5 tells us that Gamaliel was a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. So in saying that he's brought up at the feet of Gamaliel after the strictest manner of the law, he's putting himself on a really, again, a really solid footing for the moment. (laughs) Stay tuned. Uh, If you've read ahead, you know this doesn't last. Verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were to, who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So the religious leaders in Israel had given Paul charge. They gave him letters saying, you have our permission, you have our mandate to go to Syria, to go to Damascus and arrest these people. Evidently, they had extradition powers because to arrest them and extradite them back to Jerusalem so that they could be prosecuted. That's how far in 
this guy Saul of Tarsus. That was his that was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. That's how far committed he was to destroying this thing called the Way, which was the early church's name in those days. I don't believe that Paul ever forgot the manner of life he had prior to when Christ got a hold of him. Throughout his ministry, you see glimpses throughout his letters uh, that he had deep regrets for the manner of life that he had uh, in persecuting the church, in persecuting Christians. Think about him. I mean, he's standing before this crowd. He had murdered Christians. He'd, He'd attempted to force them to blaspheme at the point of a sword. He destroyed families, homes. Saul of Tarsus, for all intents and purposes, was... In that era, uh, for that region, he was the Antichrist. And I don't mean capital A, but he had the, what the Bible calls the spirit of Antichrist. If it, I mean, it, just the word would set him off. There was no more vile man, greater threat to the church than this guy Saul. And now he stands before this crowd in Jerusalem, cleansed by the blood, standing in, extending to them the grace of God that he had been so completely, thoroughly saved by. Again, up until this point, he's saying, look, I was you. I was just like you. I understand your anger. I understand your bitterness. I understand uh, your motivation to come against this thing called the way, these Christians. Up until this point, they would have been able to relate to all that Paul had said. But in verse 6, he pivots. He begins to tell them of an event that changed the entire course of his life. Verse 6, now it happened as I journeyed and I came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. Now, I want to take a few minutes and look at the light, this light that Paul talks about that he describes here. And there are three accounts of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. It's chapter 9, chapter 22, where we're at here, and again in chapter 26. We're not going to go into depth on those, but in chapter 9, Luke simply tells us that it was a light from heaven that flashed around him. Around him. Uh, here in Acts 22, Paul relates that it was a great light from heaven. And in Acts chapter 26, he tells King Agrippa this light was brighter than the sun. Interesting. As we look at this, as we look at this light, the origin of this light, I want to go to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, there Matthew relates the transfiguration of Jesus in this way. In Matthew 16, 1, he says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain, probably Mount Tabor, uh, by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Listen to this. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. What these men were seeing on the Mount of Transfiguration and what Saul saw there that day on the Damascus Road was simply the glory of God. That's what the light was. Glory. Light. Now, I want you to understand, it's not something that God has. It's not something that God possesses. No, this is, it's part of his essence. It's who he is. Uh, If you belong to Jesus, you will one day experience this glory, this light firsthand. In Revelation 21, going out past the end of the age, we see a description of the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. That city, I I love the way it's measured, 1,500 miles cubed. (laughs) That's a weird dimension, but you know, hey, (laughs) I'm for it. Anyway, he says, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. Interesting. He goes on, John goes on here in Revelation 21. He says, the lamb 
is its light. He goes on to chapter 22 and he says, you know what? There's no nighttime there (laughs) because you're not waiting for the sun to come up or go down. That the glory of God is what illuminates heaven. Interesting too, if you go back to the, the tabernacle way back, in the Holy of Holies, there is no record when they, when Moses got instructions to build that tent of meeting out in the wilderness, there is no record of a source of light behind the veil. The source of light that the high priest had when he went in there once a year to make atonement for the people was the glory of God, the light above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Anyway, so stunning was this event in Saul's life that it virtually overwhelmed him, knocked him to the ground. Verse 7, and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, it's interesting that Jesus' first words to Saul come in the form of a question here in verse 7. When he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why, Saul? Now, to be fair, I believe that Saul already understands that this is a divine experience because He answers Jesus' question with a question of his own. He says, who are you, Lord? Kurios, that's the Greek name for for God, Lord. Then in verse 8, Jesus flatly states, I am Jesus, the Nazarene. Yes, it's... In the original, it's a little different than in the New King James. It doesn't make a big difference. But he literally says, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, uh, whom you are persecuting. <sighs> Folks, know this. He takes it personally. He took it personally with Paul, with Saul, then on that Damascus road. He took it personally that he was persecuting Christians in his day. He also takes it personally when people come against those who belong to him in our day. It's personal to to Jesus. It's personal now. It was personal then. In Matthew 25, I want to look at this for a minute. Jesus speaks of judging the nations. Now, I'm not going to go into depth. I'm not going to teach the passage, but I want to pull a point out of it. Uh, It's where he talks about separating the sheep on his right hand from the goats on his left. Now, he's speaking to those. This is not the ultimate judgment. This is not the great white throne, okay? This is after the tribulation. He's speaking to those who will have entry into his millennial kingdom and those who will not, okay? So I want to emphasize the context of this passage. It's not the same as the great white throne, that final judgment that comes at the end of the millennium. This judgment comes before. Uh, It's a powerful passage, uh, but again, I want to make a point. Matthew 25, 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. He says, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. He goes on in Matthew 25. I'm not going to cover the whole text there. But he speaks to those who have been indifferent towards him, who did not give food to the hungry or drink to the thirsty, those who did not take a stranger in or visit the sick or those in prison. And in verse 45, he says that he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me. Folks, he takes it personally. 
Be assured, be encouraged. Jesus said, you know, blessed are you when men revile you, say all manner of evil against you falsely. Great is your reward in heaven. He says they do that not because of who you are, but because of who I am. It's not talking about a works-based righteousness. That would be absolutely contrary to the grace uh, that we stand in. But the point in all of this is he does take these things to heart. He does take what you're going through at the hands of another. He takes that personal. Back to Acts 22, verse 9, he says, And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, some people have wrongly implied there's a contradiction between the account of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 and, and here in verse 9 of Acts 22. Now, the Greek grant, because it says that they heard a voice in chapter 9, and here it says they didn't hear the voice. But let me go into the Greek grammar here because there are words that, like an English word, has a couple of different meanings. Uh, it implies that they heard a sound but didn't recognize the word. Now, uh, the, the words that, that were being spoken, the, the New American Standard Version renders this correctly in verse 9. It says, And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Same thing happens in John chapter 12, just so that you understand. You know, there is the scripture that backs up this taking place. The disciples had been with Jesus and the Father speaks from heaven and they think it's thunder because they don't understand that there is legible words being spoken. So enough said on that. Verse 10. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Now, keep in mind, as we read this, Saul had been intent on going to Damascus to persecute and arrest the followers of Christ all along. Now, and I would submit to you that in the time between when the light flashed and he was knocked to the ground, in this moment that Saul is a changed man. His question is, what shall I do, Lord? He uses that term again. Something else about this, I think it's worth pointing out, is that the Lord's instructions for him are interesting. He's already headed for Damascus. As I said, the Lord simply tells him, get up and go. So the question occurs to me, why didn't Jesus give him a detailed list of instructions right then on the spot? And I believe that there's a really important principle in this for us. As we walk by faith, our lives are not scripted in the sense that we know ahead of time what's around the next bend. They're just not. Uh, I remember one day teaching at a church in California, I've mentioned this before, and saying, you don't know what your life will look like by the time you hit that door. And before that message was over, the phone had rung at the church and one of our sons and his family had been in a head-on collision and we were headed for the hospital. We didn't know whether we should go to Cedarville or whether we should go to Alturas or go to Reading. I mean, they had aircraft going to all these different places because it was a horrible accident. My point is, it's not scripted. You don't know. We don't know what our life holds. I wonder <laughs> if we did, how would that affect the way we live our lives? Would I constantly be arguing with God about his plans for me? Wait a minute, I don't like that. Yep. <laughs> would my attention, would my focus, the attention that I have, would that be on his plans or would it be on him? I would be a lot more wrapped up in what he was doing than I was in depending on him. So it's clear from this passage that Jesus knows ahead of time what's around the next bend for Paul. He refers to those things as that which he had already been appointed for him to do. That's what the text tells us. Jesus knows that. He knows what the, what's a, that plan looks like. Paul doesn't. 
Jesus says, get up and go to Damascus. Jesus is simply calling him to obedience to the next step. I believe, folks, I believe that it's progressive revelation in our lives. And sometimes that drives me bonkers. I freely admit because I like to plan things out. Sometimes I've gotten to the end of a thing and gone, oh God, I just praise you that I didn't know that that was coming. Verse 11, and since I couldn't see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. So some believe that Paul's blindness here is the thorn in the flesh that he had, that we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me that I wouldn't exalt myself. I don't know, maybe it is. I, you know, I've talked about when we were earlier in the book of Acts, perhaps it was uh, when he was traveling earlier on in his travels and, and he, had, he got malaria. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh is. However, <laughs> whether it was or not, Paul had been humbled. Think about it. This is definitely not the entrance to Damascus that he had planned on, having to be led blind by the hand. Come on, Paul, follow me. And he's kind of doddering, tripping over things as he goes. It's important to remember, too, that Paul is still addressing the Jews at the Antonia Fortress on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I have to wonder what they must be thinking by this point in his talk. Maybe they're beginning to scratch their heads. I don't know. He goes on, verse 12, And a certain Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Amazing, remarkable. So uh, Ananias, this guy's interesting because in chapter 9, we read he initially balked when the Lord said, I want you to go and do this with this guy Saul. No, 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 not so fast. I think maybe you got the wrong guy, God, because he's a mean dude. He has got power to arrest me and cart me off to... No, I'm good. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but he was not real thrilled about the assignment that he'd gotten from the Lord. And uh, so... but he, he relents and he becomes obedient again in that next step. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust you for what's next, Lord. That's what Ananias is, uh, how his actions prove out what's going on here. It, but in chapter 9, verse 10, he's described as a disciple. So we know that he is a follower of Christ. And here, Paul describes him as a devout man. Now, the Jews would have clicked into that. They would have thought, oh, okay, I get it. Uh, it's a, it, that was a term the Jews would understand. So that, along with uh, Ananias' faithfulness to the law of Moses that Paul is telling these people, uh, that would have strengthened Paul's testimony about the account of his conversion. Again, he's, try, he's standing there on the steps of the fortress. He's got this huge, massive crowd in front of him. And he sees, this is the moment that I've been waiting for. I need for these people to understand that I'm not standing here in my own power. I am standing here because this is where God put me. And it wasn't an easy road. Verse 14, then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you uh, this is Ananias speaking. The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, interesting, the Jews are not picking up on nuance here because he says you will be his witness to all men. And they wanted him to be his witness to Jews only. Regardless of that, this is Paul's call from God to his apostolic ministry. This is where it starts. This is where he goes from being Saul, that mean-hearted Jew that was running around trying to kill people, 
to Paul, the apostle, the, the direct representative, that's what an apostle was, of Jesus himself. So you might be wondering, well, how, how can that be? I mean, this is long after the cross, long after the resurrection. How can Paul be an apostle like grouped with those other guys? Glad you asked. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul answers that. He addresses this very subject. People, And that was a question that many people asked him as he taught, as he went around planting these churches and stuff. He goes into length, at great length, in the book of Galatians and defends his apostleship. But in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he, he's writing to the Corinthians. He's talking about after the resurrection, the people that saw Jesus... And he goes through and he names the other apostles. And then in chapter 15, verse 8, he says, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Now, that's an interesting phrase. It's kind of a shocking phrase in Greek. It would be the phrase that someone would use for a miscarriage. And I don't know what Paul's motivation, maybe he wanted some shock value there. But when he says, I was one that was born out of due time, I was not, I didn't come, I didn't have the three-year gestation that the rest of the apostles had, you know, when I traveled around with Jesus. I was born out of due time. I was born separately from them. And then he goes on and he says, why? In verse 9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, whom not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So following his conversion, uh, Paul would go to Arabia, where he was taught by Christ personally. We see that in the book of Galatians. Uh, the other apostles would later, he would go to Jerusalem. He would go right to the apostles and they would recognize and put their amen to the fact that he had indeed been called as an apostle of Christ. Their, uh, in Jerusalem, their former enemy. I mean, because when he first got there, they were very wary. <laughs> I could rabbit trail on that, but I'm not gonna. So, As he went out on his missionary journeys, uh, this is where he changed his name. And I remember earlier in the book of Acts, when we got, he and Barnabas were on their first journey, and it was Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, and then the narrative changes to Paul and Barnabas. And that's as he went out. Now, as he goes out, he's using his Greek name, which is Paul, uh, instead of his Hebrew name, which was Saul. Verse 16, and now (laughs) he says, now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. This is Ananias still. And wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. So the context here is Ananias is encouraging Saul now. He's regained his sight. He uses the symbolism that baptism represents. So uh, Paul would write later in Romans 6.4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what he's talking about is what baptism represents. Now, this is not, I'll tell you what, there's a a, a train of thought out there that talks about baptismal regeneration, that you're saved by being baptized. And this is one of the texts that they use for that. Totally out of context. And it doesn't line up with other passages in the New Testament that put forth solid teaching on baptism. So it's not a proof text for that because that would, again, that would totally contradict the salvation of, by grace through faith alone that we stand in. So verse 17, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. <laughs> I picture that. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Now, this must have come as a shock to Paul because he knows, 
He knows his education. He knows the Jews. He knows their customs. He knows the law of Moses. He understands the mindset that these people had. And he's thinking, well, wait a minute. Didn't you do all of this so that I could go back and and be able to relate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews? And now you're saying, get out of town? (laughs) Just This isn't in my notes, but this is free. If you're going to argue with God, you're wrong. <laughs> it's just that simple. So it's almost like what Paul wants to do is argue and say, wait, 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 wait. No, he's calling him to leave town because God knows that he's calling Paul to a ministry with the Gentiles and not the Jews. And he's using these things to pull him out of Jerusalem because he would have settled in. He would have stayed there. And he says, no, your life's in danger. Get out of here. So it's also the first time that Paul relates the vision that he had that day in a trance in Jerusalem. He relates this vision uh, that the Lord had given him to get out of town, to get out of Jerusalem. So near the end of his first trip, uh, after his conversion, we're told in chapter, again, chapter 9, that Paul had spoken boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem. And he spoke that. Uh, in doing so, he ticked off. Uh, the Hellenists. It talks about the Hellenists. And they were Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews that were steeped in Greek culture. All right. And there was always some rub between Hebrew Jews and Hellenistic Jews. They didn't, they, they just didn't get along too well. That overflowed into the church. I'm not going to go there. There was a lot of hubbub about that at the church in Rome and so on. But needless to say, they didn't like what he was doing and they hatched a plot to kill Paul. Uh, and as a result, when the brothers find out, found out about it, they hauled him off to Caesarea. And from there, he went to Tarsus, his hometown. And later, Barnabas and him would hook up. And that's when he would begin his missionary journeys. So just a little background on that, on what he's saying. He's telling these the Jews here at Pentecost, look, I, I was <laughs> I was sticking around Jerusalem. And the Lord said, no, 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 it's dangerous. You need to leave. And so... He left. He says in verse 19, so I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when your blood, the blood of your, your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by and consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Again, arguing with God. Wait a minute. I, what do you mean leave? I have to believe that it seemed incredible to Paul that his own countrymen wouldn't listen to him that they would reject his testimony concerning Christ. He knew the, the mannerisms. He knew the customs. He knew, he knew their scriptures so well. And yet, and he tells us in 2 Corinthians that a veil lies over their heart. And that veil is only lifted when they come to faith in Christ. Uh, but in the meantime, he's saying, look, I was one of you. I radically imprisoned and beat those who embraced Jesus as Messiah. He'd even gone to the extent of being an accomplice to Stephen's death when they murdered him. Uh, But the Lord was adamant, repeated that he needed to leave Jerusalem. Verse 21, and he said to me, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. That was, you know, it's interesting. They didn't, they didn't get worked up when he talked about Jesus being the Messiah. I mean, he's been talking about this all through his talk. The Jews are still listening to him quietly, but the minute that he says Gentiles, they're all finished listening to him. They're done. Verse 22, and they listened to him and tell this word. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He is not fit to live. So 
this crowd that had been trying to kill him and that had calmed as, as Paul put forth the, the testimony of his life, his former life in Judaism, and then his life as he was being obedient now to the, God, the call on his life to be an apostle for God, the minute he gets to the word Gentiles, they freak out. They're done. We'll continue there next week. As we wrap up, I want to look at uh, some things. As you know, I like to land the plane at the end of uh, our services here. I call it land the plane. We've been flying around here for a while. Let's land. The first I want to look at, and as we apply these things to our lives, is a question. Are you beating yourself up? I don't know about you, but I do sometimes, and I'm pretty good at it. It's worth it for us to keep in mind that he or she who is forgiven much, loves much. Uh, Folks, I don't know your story, but think about Paul, Saul, and then Paul. The hatred that he had, the murderous plans that he carried out, the lives that he virtually destroyed. I'm a visual person, and I think, you know, if he was a visual person, he would probably still see the terrified looks on their faces in his mind. He had some baggage that he carried forward. There's an account in Luke chapter 7 I want to briefly read as we look at this. Jesus is there, uh, a woman, a sinner, had come and washed Jesus' feet uh, with perfume and, and wiped his feet with her hair. Peter was a little, a little worked up about it. So and I'm just breaking into the middle of the story just for the, in, in the interest of time. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, Peter's name, I have something to say to you. And so Peter said, teacher, say it. He says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. He says, you gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Folks, Paul owned, I have to know, and he could not have functioned in his ministry if he did not own God's forgiveness, if it had not penetrated to the deepest part of who he was. We should too. Our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, he would seek to use our own failures. And I don't know about you, but our own failures, and I want to insert which are many in my life, to draw us away from the grace and the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. He's good at it. Something I call negative pride creeps up in me. And what I mean by negative pride is that thing that, that wells up in me is like, look at what an idiot you've been. Look at how you have acted. Look at that secret that you kept, whatever it is. Where is my focus? It's on me. That's pride. Even if it's manifesting in a negative light, it's still pride. My focus needs to turn from being on me and my insufficiency to him and his all-sufficient nature as the gracious, loving Lord in my life. So you're beating yourself up? Here's some pastoral advice. Stop it. Don't let negative pride creep in. Don't let condemnation rule in your heart. Lighten up on yourself. He who loves much, who has been forgiven much, loves much. Second thing I want to look at is, are you holding other people hostage? (laughs) 
in your mind. Hopefully you don't have anybody you know, tied up in your trunk. And we, you know, we've looked at this recently, but I think it's worth going, I can never get enough of this type of application because I, it speaks to me. Well, it speaks to you, that's a bonus, but it does speak to me. But there's two sides to this forgiveness thing. I need to walk in God's forgiveness personally. I need to understand that I am not condemned. I need to understand that beating myself up is really putting an undue focus upon myself. Conversely, I can hold other people hostage emotionally. And you know, one of the tenets of our culture, especially when I look at the woke culture and, oh, don't get me started. When I look at the world's culture, there is absolutely no forgiveness towards others. I mean, just, just take a few minutes looking at the so-called media. I mean, it's like, you're condemned, throw away the key. That's it, you're condemned. There's nothing more. Brothers and sisters, that should never be named among us. We need to have forgiving hearts. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 30, Paul, the apostle, writes, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He, and then he goes in and he says, let all bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So how do you grieve the Holy Spirit? One major way is to harbor unforgiveness towards others. Folks, we're a bunch of broken people living in a broken world, different ideas, different temperaments, different personalities. Guess what? Here's a newsflash. Sometimes I blow it. Uh, there have been times where I have blown it big time. And no, I'm not telling you what that is. Got your own list. I have mine. I'll guarantee you those times in my life where I have, I have uh, understood the depth of my own ability to, to, to screw up and have come clean with the Lord. I mean, if we confess those sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and, and to, to take all of the unrighteousness away. Those times where I have exercised that with others, grace, unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, but I'm choosing to love you anyway. Those are the times that I have really understood on a functional level, the grace of God that's poured out on my life. Very, very important. So if you're holding other people hostage, stop it. Finally, what's the next step? I don't know what it is in your life, but I do know that the next step in mine, but in a general sense, is God calling you onward Yeah, because this walk is not a static walk. It's not something that's fixed. We are always in process. There is always the next step. There is always something more. And yeah, I don't live in the dissatisfaction of the now because it's going to happen then. As a young Christian, I did that. And man, oh man, that was just a horrible way to live. Chances are good that he hasn't laid out a series of action steps for you and taking (laughs) uh, that you need to take so you can discover his plan for your life. Probably not a list on your refrigerator. You know, I came out of Bible college in 1985, and I thought I was headed for for full-time vocational ministry. It's like, Lord, I'm ready. No, I wasn't. It would be nine years from that time uh, before the leaders that I'd made myself accountable to laid hands on me, and the Lord called me into the pastorate in 1994. Again, I had much to learn. I still do. But it wasn't until I put my plans on the altar and I said, Lord, you know, this is your, you know, my life. If I say my life is yours, it really has to be yours. Committed myself to faithfulness in the next step, whatever he was putting in front of me today. And that's where I learned a valuable life lesson. One of my life verses is Hebrews 10.36. And it says, for you have need of endurance, also patience. That's how it's rendered in other translations. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. 
That's a great, I'll tell you what, that has served me so well over the years because, and I'm not saying that we don't make plans. I'm not saying that we don't have goals or dreams. But what I am saying is God calls us to simple obedience and faithfulness in the next step. Let him take care of what's happening after that. That's what he did with Paul. He, Paul said, well, what do you want from me? I, you know, here I am. I'm blind. I, I can't see. And, you know, all right, you've got my attention, God. And he says, go to Damascus. Well, I was already going to Damascus. Okay, go to, go to Damascus. It was that simple. After that, I'll let you know. And I'll tell you what, God is faithful. He will let you know. Simply obey him with the next step. Trust him. That might be an attitude of the heart. It may be something tangible for you to do. I don't know what it is in your life, but I do know that that's what he does in mine. And you know what? It's so freeing. I don't have to worry. Yeah, I have, I, 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 for years, walked around, I had a little photo album of how my life is going to look. <laughs> then I realized life does not fit my picture. It just doesn't. If you had told me last August I'd be laying dead in a parking lot behind our car, come on. That was what God had for me. And there have been some way different next steps coming out of that experience, I'm telling you. Lean into it. doesn't mean you have to die to get that point across. But <laughs> I was telling one of the guys in our men's group one night, I said, yeah, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. He goes, yeah, for most of us. <laughs> the point is, lean into what God's doing in your life. Allow him to take control. Don't beat yourself up. Don't hold other people's hostage. And ask him to show you the next step. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, this divinely inspired word, Father, is just so exciting to study it together with these brothers and sisters and, and those watching us online. I pray, Father, for each one of us. Lord, you know the things that we're grappling with. You know the issues of our lives and the, the issues of our hearts. And so I pray, Father. I pray comfort for the brokenhearted. I pray health for those who are sick. Uh, we lift up Terry to you right now with kidney stones at home. I pray specifically for her. Also pray, Father, that you would have your way with us, that we, as your children, would simply look to our Father for instruction on whatever that next thing is. And so, Lord, give us the ability to live in peace and excitement with those around us, knowing that the days are short. And, and, and Jesus, we pray for your soon return. We give ourselves afresh to you, Father. We pray your will be done in us and through us as we go out and, and as we continue with our day. Conform us to the image of your Son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.